Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, I think of the song that we just sang and all those names that were just used for the Lord Jesus Christ. King of nations, true prophet, Emmanuel, and more. Dayspring. Father, this is who You are. This is who Christ is. And I pray that in these next few moments, as we finally unfold the last verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, that You would help us to long for this Jesus. I pray that we would see Him in Your Word shining forth as the bright and morning star that He is. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for this book. I thank You for Ecclesiastes. I thank You for the the time that we have been able to spend here, being able to preach through this book verse by verse, to see this language just continually grip my soul as I pray it has gripped their soul, the people who sit before me. Father, You are holy. You are gracious. You are merciful. And I pray that You would be with us now as we once again hear from Your Word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, it's a after two weeks of yeah, we're good. I hit the record button. After two weeks of uh, being off, one of those weeks Kelly and I spent on vacation in Chattanooga, Tennessee. It's it's good to be back with you. Uh, the first week, of course, I was here when Don Barrett came and filled in, and then last week we were gone when Jared Hawthorne was here. And I listened to his message, and I hope you enjoyed it, because I sure did. And I think it's really funny that Don and Jared both preached on the same text. I listened to that, and I just laughed. I was like, whoa, what are the odds? Both preached on Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. So I hope you enjoyed that. It's a good message, gospel-centered life. But now, here we are. This morning, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, looking at verses 8 to 14. The the moment you've all been waiting for, right? The end of the matter, all has been heard. And we're going to see this morning what it is. And as we prepare to to walk through these, these last verses, I want to begin by putting before you all a question. How have you been impacted by this book? How have you personally, over the course of the past, for for most of you, some of you are visiting, you may have heard a couple of sermons, most of you have heard all 16, today making 17 sermons. So how have you all, over the past four and a half months of listening to this book, verse by verse, how has it impacted you? For example, has this book resulted in you loving the Bible more? Has it caused you to delight in Jesus more? Longing for the day when you get to see the one who will drive away the curse and will make all things new? Has reading through this book, listening through these sermons, has it resulted in things similar to that? 
And I begin by, by asking those questions because as we're going to see in a moment, the preacher, the author of this book, the book of Ecclesiastes, he, he wrote with the intention that certain things would happen to the one who was reading it. He wrote with the intention that you, the reader, would have something happen to you. That something would result. That it would impact you in certain ways. So I wonder, how have you been reading or listening through this book? Have you done so deeply? Have you done so thoughtfully? Have you done so prayerfully? So that these words would impact you as the preacher has intended them to. Now, before we, we see those things, however, you're going to have to wait. Before we see, you know, why the preacher wrote this book, before, before we see the intention that he has for you in this book, let's read these verses together, let's look at the structure, and then we'll, we'll walk through them. So beginning in verse 8, hear the word of the Lord. Now remember, right before verse 8, the preacher has just ended his poem that we called it, his poem on death and aging. That's what we were looking at a few weeks ago, the last time I was up here preaching to you. We were unfolding that poem and what it meant for you. And now in verse 8 he says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret, every secret thing, thing, whether good or evil. Now, the way that we're going to be handling this passage this morning is in, in three parts. And the first part is in verse 8. Verse 8 is the, the final conclusion. And that may or may not be confusing to you because, you know, why is verse 8 called the final conclusion? It's not the last words of the book. You know, we still have verses 9 to 14 to read. So why is verse 8 the final conclusion? Well, in verses 9 to 14, what we see is the epilogue of the book. That's what it's called. It's called the epilogue. And what that means is that in verse 8, you see the conclusion. That's how the preacher concludes his book. That's his concluding statement. And then in verses 9 to 14, we see his personal comments on his book, on his work, why he did it which is what we're going to see in verses 9 to 12. That's the second part that we're going to handle. 
why he wrote what he wrote, what his intentions are for you, the reader, in reading his book. So, first part, final conclusion, verse 8. Second part, we find in the epilogue, verses 9 to 12, why he did what he did, the intention that he has behind it for you, the reader. And then thirdly, also in the epilogue, verses 13 to 14. And this is a summary. This is a summary of the whole book, the end of the matter. In those two verses, verses 13 and 14, he is going to put before us a summary of the past 12 chapters. Everything that we've read. He's going to summarize it all in those two verses. So that's where we're going. Final conclusion, verse 8. The intention of the author, verses 9 to 12. And then the end of the matter, the summary in verses 13 and 14. So that's where we're headed. Now, go with me back up to verse 8, to the conclusion of the book. And the first question that I want us to to ask ourselves as we read over verse 8 is, why is this phrase significant? When you read over verse 8, you should be asking yourself, why is this phrase significant? Second question, where was the last time that you saw that phrase used? Where was the last time that you, the reader, saw this phrase used. is at the very beginning of the book, right? I mean, they're not exactly identical, but it's the same thing. He puts vanity together in the same way here as he did at the very beginning of the book in verse 1. There he opened the book and he said, Vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. And we see that here in verse 8 which means that the preacher has opened and closed this book with that phrase so that we would see something when we read over it. So what are we meant to see? What are we meant to see here as he closes the book like this? Well, if you remember, the first time that the preacher used that phrase, he was just introducing That word, vanity, which literally means breath. You know, we've been talking about that word over the course of this book. I'm not going to get into it, but it means breath, vapor, mist, something that's temporary, something that you can't quite get your hands around. It flees you. So he was introducing that in verse 1. And at first, as the reader, we don't really understand what he means by by saying that, do we? No, we have to read the rest of the book and we have to see how he, the author, unfolds it to us. Which is what we've been doing throughout the course of this book, haven't we? For 38 times now. Which is how many times he's used the word. Vanity. He has used that word for 38 times, counting the uses that we see here in verse 8. So it's an important word. You know, He wants you to get and to understand that word. And so each and every time that we have, we've heard that word, we've seen Him use that word, each and every time you and I have, have gotten a better understanding or a, a clearer picture of what it means. 
Also, the, the impact of the Word has gotten stronger with, with every use. I mean, 35 times, not counting the, the uses that we see here in verse 8, 35 times this man has not only just told us that everything is a breath, but he has taken us by the hand and he has walked us through his book describing to us what this word means using some of the most vivid language throughout the whole entire Bible. He doesn't just say it to you. He explains it to you with this vivid imagery, with this poetic language. And so every single time that we, that we come across it, the impact of the Word is, is meant to just hit you, you know, a little bit harder. Vanity. 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 Then we come here to verse 8, where for the last time the preacher, you know, he kind of takes us to the side, you know, kind of quiet-like, you know, kind of like a preacher may would do to you, you know, after he's been telling you something for so long and he makes sure he wants to make sure that you get it, he takes you to the side, maybe sits you down, looks you in the eye, and he says to for the last time, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. It's all a breath. He's looking you in the eyes right now in verse 8, and He's telling you that for the last time. It's all a breath. I think also that there's an embedded question here that the preacher is asking us as well. I think He's asking us, do you understand now? Do you understand? Can, can you see the truth that everything under the sun is like a breath. Do you see that clearly? And can you see that if you're trying to hold tightly to something here, that you're like a man who is striving after the wind? You know, that picture that he's been painting for us throughout the whole book. A man who's trying to grasp, trying to catch what is uncatchable. And we're meant to think, man, that is so dumb. You know, that dude is dumb trying to, to catch the wind because it cannot be caught. But that's what you're like. If you're trying to hold tightly, if you're trying to hold on, grip on to something in this world, you're like that man who is going after the wind and trying to catch what cannot be caught. So do you see? Do you understand this truth that He has been unfolding before you throughout 12 chapters? And do you agree with the preacher when he says that everything under the sun is like a breath and that there is nothing to be gained here under the sun? Do you agree with him? I hope you do. I've been praying you know, throughout the course of this series that you do agree with Him. Because if you don't agree with Him, then one day you're going to be thoroughly disappointed when death comes and it strips everything away from you. You know, what we've been seeing once again throughout the course of this book. Death is going to come. And when it comes, it doesn't care who you are, 
where you're from, what you look like, how much money you have, how many friends you have, how many possessions you own. Death shows no partiality, friends. When it comes, it's coming to take everything away. And if you do not agree with this man, you're going to be thoroughly disappointed when it does come. Death is coming and it shows no partiality. So you need something that can't be lost or can't be taken away because of the curse of of sin and death. Rather, I should say you need someone who can't be lost or be taken away by the curse of sin and death. And the one you need is the curse breaker. You need Jesus. As we've been seeing throughout the book, Jesus Christ is the one who comes into this curse-stricken world and redeems it. You know, He comes into the world and the curse has no power over Christ. Instead, He has power over the curse. And as we were singing a moment ago, He dispels the darkness. It flees from Him. So that's who you need. You need Christ. Death has no power over Jesus. So if you are in Christ, if you know Him and treasure Him, then death is no longer to be feared, but it is to be embraced, in fact. Right? We've been seeing that. With Christ, you can actually look at death, see it coming, and you can learn from it. It teaches you how to live life well here in this moment. You see that you're going to die, you don't have to fear it. And it's like a strange awkward teacher that shows you how to live. Because death no longer leads to darkness. It no longer leads to shame. It leads to life. Now, the epilogue of the book, verses 9 to 12. Now, why why did the preacher write what he wrote? Now, what is his intention for you as the reader? What does he expect to happen to you as you read his work, this book? What kind of impact has he planned out as he's crafted all of these words? You know, this vivid language that we've been talking about, that we've been looking at. You know, what was the purpose of all of it? And what are you meant to see? What are you meant to receive through all of it? In verses 9 to 13, we're going to see Five reasons why he wrote the words that he did. And by the way, all of these things that we're about to see him say about this book, Ecclesiastes, are also true of the entire Bible. So not only when you read Ecclesiastes are these five things meant to happen, but also when you read the entire Bible. And you'll see what I mean as we, as we walk through them. First... The preacher wrote what he did to teach you knowledge. The preacher wrote what he did to teach you, the reader, knowledge. We see that in verse 9. He says, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. And I should say at this point that there are, uh, there are many people who don't think 
the preacher wrote these words. They don't think he wrote the epilogue to this book. And their main argument is because the preacher is referred to in the third person. You can see that in verse 9 where he says, besides being wise, the preacher also taught. He's being referred to in the third person. So people read that and they say, well, he didn't write these words. You know, He's not the one who wrote these comments about the book of Ecclesiastes. They think that another person came along, read the book, and they wrote these comments down. They kind of helped the preacher out, I guess you could say. They, they were trying to help you understand what he meant by writing his works. But I just don't think that's right. Because what you see here in these comments are the very same things that have been flowing throughout the book. And it would be kind of odd for another person to come along and to insert verse, verses 13 and 14 in the way that they do. Because verses 13 and 14 just bleed with the preacher's you know, stamp of approval, I guess you could say. They bleed with his characteristics. So I think that you and I can confidently say that Solomon, who calls himself the preacher, also wrote these words as, as well. But even, let's just say that he didn't write them. You know, that somebody else did come along and comment on his book. It really doesn't matter because ultimately God is the divine author. And whether Solomon or, you know, whoever wrote these particular words, his divine message still flows through them all the same. But anyways, I, I think that you can confidently say that the preacher wrote these words. And as he says, he crafted and arranged these words, this, this book, in a, a very careful way so that you would get knowledge, so that you would gain wisdom from what you read. Learning and, and understanding how, to, how God wants you to live in His world. That's the type of, of knowledge that we're meant to see here. Because biblical wisdom, biblical knowledge is not just meant to make you a smarter person. It's not just meant to make you more intellectual. You know, like if you were to read a history book and you gain a bunch of facts. Biblical wisdom, biblical knowledge is meant to have an effect on your life and that it helps you live well in God's world, how He intends for you to live. That should be the result of what you've been seeing here. This knowledge that you've gained. So going back to the questions that I was asking at the beginning of the sermon, has these words, has this book impacted you in that way? Have you received, have you learned that type of knowledge from what the preacher has been saying from you? Has this book impacted you in that way? And this is, whole of the, this is true of the whole Bible as well. Every time you open the words of the Bible, no matter what you're reading, no matter what book of the Bible you are reading from, it expects a response from you, the reader. God did not write the Bible so that you could be impressive to other people. So that you could go up to people, non-believers, who don't know the Bible and just spout out a bunch of Bible knowledge and 
prove them wrong, win arguments, you know, so on and so forth. It's not what the Bible is meant to do. It's meant to show you how to live in God's world. So has it done that? Second, the preacher wrote what he did so that you would receive pleasure. The preacher wrote what he did so that you would receive pleasure. Look at the first part of verse 10. The preacher sought to find words of delight. Now, if you're reading in the ESV, that's what you read. You read words of delight. But if you're reading the NIV or maybe another translation, what you see is just the right words. That's what the NIV says. Now, why they translate that phrase or that word in that way, I'm not sure. Because that word literally means their pleasure. So I'm not sure why they say just the right words. But that's what this means. These words, this book, it's it's meant to bring you joy. Now that may be shocking. Because we've saw a lot of hard things in this book that don't seem pleasurable, right? But that's why he did this. That's why he crafted the poem about time, you know, that famous poem that I called the, the terrible and beautiful reality of time. That's why he crafted his initial poem at, in chapter 1 when he's talking about the patterns and the cycles of the world. That's why he crafted these proverbs and these wise sayings together. He crafted them so that you would read them and that you would see delight and receive joy from God's Word. And again, this is true of the entire Bible. Do you read God's Word and receive joy from what you read? Does it bring you delight to open His Word? Does it give you joy? Now I realize that the Bible is hard to read. I just got through reading through Ezekiel in my Bible plan. And my goodness, Ezekiel. That is a hard book to read. Especially when you get to the end and he meets this, this angel or this man who's going around measuring all of these different things. And I'm just thinking, okay, why am I reading this? You know, what, what effect is this supposed to have on my life? <laughs> and there's other part, parts in the Bible, right? Leviticus. You know, I know you guys are all familiar with the Leviticus. You know, how do you find words of delight in those things? But this is why they're all there. You know, they all point us to Christ in a particular way. And so when you read the Bible that way, when you put the work, the effort in, you find that it's beautiful. You find that the book of Ecclesiastes is in fact beautiful. And that's a good way to gauge your spiritual condition. How do you read the Bible? Now, like I said, I know it's hard. You know, it's very much an up and down struggle. But do you ever, ever receive delight from what you see? You need to be asking yourself that question. Because if it's, because if you're not receiving delight at all, then it may be because you don't know the one of whom the Bible talks about. And just think of, think of Psalm 19. You know, what David says there just about the law of God in Psalm 19. 
You know, the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul, he says. That's just one verse. And he's just talking about the law. What you and I often think is boring. He's saying it's beautiful. I wonder what David would have wrote if he could have read the New Testament and saw the words of Jesus. He would have crafted a thousand Psalm 19s. Third, the preacher wrote, wrote what he did so that you would know the truth. Second part of verse 10. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. These words, this book and the whole Bible, are words of truth. They show you true reality. They expose lies. They expose falsehood. They expose foolishness. Something that the preacher has talked a lot about in his book, right? Comparing wisdom and folly, foolishness, what it looks like, how to spot it, how to run away from it, how to be the wise person, wise person, not the foolish person. These words are meant to lead you down the right path. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word, the book of Ecclesiastes, will not lead you astray. It will be a lamp before you, a light before your path. It will not lead you astray. So do you understand that? Do you embrace these words as words of truth? Do you allow them to lead you down the right path? Or do you reject them? Do you think that they are in fact foolishness? Fourth, the preacher wrote what he did so that you would receive correction. Verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Now this is the one that we don't like to hear, right? Correction. The Bible, the book of Ecclesiastes, is meant to give you correction, and we, we wince, you know, we shy away from that. You know, we don't like discipline, we don't like correction. We don't like somebody to tell us when we're wrong. We don't like those things. You know, our, our human instinct is that we want people to always say good things about us, you know? Tell me how awesome I am, how great I am, how such a good job I just did. You know, don't correct me. Hurt my feelings. Make me feel bad. Bruise my self-esteem, you know, whatever. But as he says... They are meant to show us when we are wrong and when we are straying from the truth. These words are like goads, which are, are wooden staffs that have sharp nails in the end of them. They were used by herd drivers in the ancient world and they may still be used today in some third world, third world countries, I'm not sure. But they were used to keep the animals that they were herding going in the right direction. So they had this staff, had a nail at the end of it. If the animal went to the left, pain. If it went to the right, pain. If it stopped, pain. The only way not to get pain 
was to keep moving forward, going in the right path. And believe it or not, the Bible does this to you. Us as Christians, you know, the book of Ecclesiastes, you think about all those shocking statements that we've heard. Think about whenever he told us that, you know, the man who does not enjoy God's gifts, the stillborn child is better than he is. It's a shocking statement. That makes us wince when we read that, you know. It's meant to put us back on the right path. You know, it's the goad hitting us. Where you going, Ron? You know, get back on the right path. Embrace the truth. Embrace my words. Don't stray. The preacher's words here in Ecclesiastes are like that. Sometimes they are, they are painful to hear. Some of them are painful to read. And they're meant to be because they, they shake us back into reality and remind us what the consequences are if we continue to stray from the truth. I think of Hebrews chapter 12 where the author of Hebrews is talking about discipline. You know, he's telling us there in, in chapter 12 that discipline is good, that it's from the Lord. You know, if the Lord gives you discipline, then you are His child. You know, what father, good father, doesn't discipline his child? And you know that as a parent. If you are a good parent, you discipline your child. You see that they're doing something wrong. Now, they may not understand it in a moment. You know, why didn't you let me do that? But you as a parent know, and you discipline them to help them, to love them. And so our gracious and good Father is the same way. He strikes you with the goad so that in the end, it would be for your good. That's what these words, of, it's what these words are like. The discipline of the Lord is good for you. So do you see the Lord's correction in that way, as good for you? Do you embrace the correction of these words or do you, in fact, reject them? Also in verse 11, if you're reading in the ESV, then you might have noticed that the word shepherd is capitalized. It's capitalized. And the reason that the preacher is, or the reason that the ESV capitalizes that, that word shepherd is because he is referring to God there. He's the one shepherd that all of these wise sayings ultimately come from. And specifically, they come from the good shepherd, which is Jesus Christ, right? Now I want to pause here for a moment very quickly, and I want to bring up something that maybe you remember, because I talked about this in the very first sermon of Ecclesiastes. I was talking about the word preacher and what it meant. You know, where we get that word preacher from, why it's translated in that way. So that word there is kohelet, and it means gatherer, assembler, collector, and it's referring to Solomon. You know, he, he's the king of Israel, and so one of his responsibilities was to gather the people, collect them, assemble them, and teach them God's word to guide them as a shepherd underneath the good shepherd. And I told you that that points us to Christ. Because although Solomon is very impressive, and he teaches us many things, he can't drive these words in your heart. 
He cannot fill you with these words of wisdom. You know, He can talk to you like I'm talking to you now. He can preach to you like I'm preaching to you now. But just like me, He cannot make you do anything. I cannot take these words of mine and impress them upon your heart, upon your soul. So we need a preacher, a teacher who can, right? We need someone who can take these words and drive them into our very souls. And that's what Jesus does. You read the New Testament when Jesus is teaching the people. The people come back and they say, we've never heard a man speak like this before. And then Jesus Himself says, Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Because He's the true Kohelet. He's the true shepherd. He's the true preacher, the true teacher who not only just says things to us, but He impresses them upon our hearts. And then finally, fifth, the preacher wrote what he did to give us a warning. Verse 12. My son, beware of anything beyond beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. So here we are warned that we are not to seek after or try to create, you know, write books. We're We're not to try and create words of instruction that are better or more sufficient than what is here in this book or in the Bible. Because there aren't any. What we have here in Ecclesiastes and in the Bible are enough. They have been given to us by God and they are sufficient. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. So God, by His, through His divine power, has provided for you, for us, through the gospel and through His word, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Everything that you find in the Bible, everything that you read, is sufficient for you. You need go anywhere else. Now that does not mean that it is bad to read other books, right? It's not what he means here. It's not a bad thing for you to read books. And if you're an author and you like to write books, then it's not a bad thing to write them either. But the question that you should be asking yourself when you read these books, write these books, is this. Do these books that I read, these articles or whatever, do they lead me to this book, the Bible? You know, do they lead me to God's words? Or have I, in fact, taken these other words, these other books, these other, this other instruction, words of instruction, and turned them into an idol? You know, do I read these other books, these other articles more than I read the Bible? Do I desire these other things more than I desire the Bible? That's what you should be asking yourself. Do you desire the Bible in that way? Do you desire Ecclesiastes in that way? Is this the instruction for your life? Do you cherish God's Word above all other things? 
Now finally we come to the, the end of the matter. Verses 13 and 14. The preacher writes, this is the moment that you guys have all been waiting for. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. You need to circle that phrase there. This is the whole duty. This is the whole responsibility. This is the whole purpose of all mankind. Fear God and keep His commandments. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's it. That, that's the summary of the whole book right there. Everything that we have seen throughout this whole book has had the aim of helping you, the reader, fear God and keep His commandments. Because as the preacher says, as I mentioned a moment ago, you know that important phrase, that is our whole duty as mankind. You as a human being are called or created by God to fear Him and keep His commandments. And, and one day, you will stand before Him and He'll judge whether or not you have done so. You won't be able to hide. He'll know every secret thing, whether good or evil. And that's very significant because what is something that we've been seeing throughout the course of this book? You know, there's a lot that we don't understand, right? You know, Solomon over and over again says that I've sought wisdom, but I haven't found it. You know, I've looked for wisdom in this area, but I don't know. You know, he is forced over and over again to say, I can't find it. You know, I don't know everything. I'm at a loss for words. But God is not at a loss for words. He knows everything. Nothing is hidden from His sight. Every secret thing, whether good or evil, when you stand before Him on that day, on the judgment, or on the judgment day in front of His throne, which Christ will be sitting on, every event, every circumstance that you've ever experienced that you don't understand, it'll all be before Jesus plain as day. And He'll reveal to you why these things happen. You in that moment will understand why certain things happen and you don't know why. And He's also going to judge on whether or not you feared Him and kept His commandments. So let me ask you, when have you ever loved the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and loved your neighbor as yourself? You haven't, have you? Have you? Me either. You know, I haven't for one millisecond feared God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and loved my neighbor as myself. I have failed utterly to do that. And I fail to do it every day. And so do you. And that's a big deal. Because that's your whole duty. That's your whole purpose. And you're going to stand before Him one day having utterly failed in that purpose. 
So what are you to do? You know, thanks be to God for Christ in the Gospel, right? Because without Christ, you and I have just spent four and a half months on a book that is no good to us. We get to the end of the book, He says, this is your whole duty, fear God, keep your command in His commandments. And we're just like, that's great, but I can't do it. You know, we need somebody who can do it for us. We need somebody who can take on the whole duty of man and perform it in perfection. Who can love the Lord his God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and love his neighbor as himself. Which is what Christ does in the Gospel. And so if you know Him, if you cherish Christ, if you have trusted in Him, if you say that there's nothing else that can save me, there's nothing else that can bring me through that day, then God will smile on you that day. Smile on you in that day. But if you don't know Him, if you don't cherish Him, if you think by some work that you can do, you'll be disappointed. And God will cast you out of His presence because you have failed your whole duty. So as we reach these last words of the preacher, may they drive you to Christ. May the whole Bible, brothers and sisters in Christ, friends, may it always and forevermore drive you to the One who did what none of us could do. Father, we thank You for Your Word. I thank You that it is a delight to the eyes. I thank You that it is sweeter than honey, as David says in Psalm 19. And we thank You for Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.